chapter 12 once again. I know that I have already preached two sermons from Romans 12. I hope you're not wearied by it yet because there is at least a third just from verse 1. Romans chapter 12, how about we read those first two verses once again, kind of keep us online and in track with what the actual words of the text say. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the I of course is the Apostle Paul, he is a appealing to the Roman Christians. And that, I'm not talking the Roman Catholic Church, I'm talking Roman Christians. Before it defected. Before it went into false doctrine. First century, church at Rome. And in the broader context, being God's Word to us. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or, as the old KJV says, your reasonable service. The spiritual, the reasonable, it has to do with the reason, it has to do with the mind, it has to do with the thinking. And the term worship or service, it really is a term that has to do with the priestly service. So you can see how it might be worship as well. Do not be, and this, this by the way, offering yourself a living sacrifice is the Christian's service. If you're thinking about a priest, if you're thinking about the service you render up to God, if you think about your worship and what is reasonable, what is spiritual, it is that, the living sacrifice. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Living sacrifices are not conformed to this world. They're very much unlike the world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And what Paul wants us to do is think a certain way in order to be a certain type of living sacrifice. And that's where he makes his appeal. And that's where we're going to come to today. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And it is the will of God to be a living sacrifice. What is acceptable to God, what is holy and acceptable to God is to do the will of God. That is what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the life that every Christian is being called to live. Now listen. A little bit, allow me this liberty to do a little bit of review. I, I started my message and I thought, okay, well, it's been four weeks since I preached that first message. Let's just do a little bit of review. By the time I got done reviewing, I was halfway through the sermon. Which, and I didn't go back and change it. Just allow me that liberty because it's so important. I want you to really hear 
Now, some of you weren't here for the first two messages, so you might be glad I go there. And some of you forget. And listen, I'm not, I'm not accusing you. I mean, if you come and ask me oftentimes what I preached four weeks ago, I, or even two weeks sometimes, it's hard for me to remember. So I, I understand forgetting. My first sermon had one purpose. Preached it about four weeks ago today. One purpose. That was my first message on Romans 12.1. One purpose, one purpose I wanted to emphasize to you, I wanted you folks to go home with. Now here it is. God is calling us to do something in Romans 12.1. We are being called to do something. Hello, folks. Let's see. There's three seats back over here in the corner. If you can make your way back over there. Go right up here, guys. Paul is calling us, he's appealing to us to be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I mean, he's appealing to us to be that. We need to figure out what that is. Now, that isn't my main point in the first one. It wasn't so much just to define the living sacrifice. I actually had another agenda. But it means to do the will of our Father in heaven. That's basically what it is. It means to put ourselves entirely offered up on the altar. It's it's sacrificial terminology. It's priestly terminology. It's altar-type terminology. It's offering yourself on the altar of God. It means giving yourself to His will, to Himself, to His purposes. It's rising up out of your bed every day with that... And, And remember, Paul is appealing to our thinking. We are to be renewing the minds. We need to be thinking this way. When you rise out of bed, it is with that attitude, I do not belong to myself. I am living for Christ now. I have been bought with a price. I present my body to God. That means myself. I don't, I am not living my own agenda anymore. And look, there's a life that is spelled out here for us that is this living sacrifice. It's basically what we find in Romans 12. Now, we haven't gone all the way through it yet. We've glanced forward, we looked at it, but there's a way that living sacrifices handle the needs of others. Look, if you're a living sacrifice, you see a brother in need, there's a way living sacrifices respond to that. Is there not? That's what we're going to find out in Romans 12. Living sacrifices respond a certain way when they see a brother crying. We weep with those who weep. There's a certain way that living sacrifices respond when they're persecuted. Or when they're done wrong. They don't do like Andre does. Or did. Did. Let's not make that present tense. He's praying for his brother to go to hell. Living sacrifices don't do that. Living sacrifices can take being wronged and return blessing for evil. There is a certain way living sacrifices live. It involves love, affection, zeal, humility, rejoicing, compassion, patience, prayer, giving, blessing, hospitality, associating with the lowly. My one 
purpose in that first sermon was to prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that this way of life, being a living sacrifice, is not optional. Now, yes, Paul appeals to you to be this. But it's not as though Paul is there thinking to himself, okay, if I appeal to Christians to be living sacrifices, they might or might not do it. Oh no, Paul's theology is better than that. Paul knows that every one of God's children will definitely respond to his appeal. Now, not a, we don't always respond as quickly as we ought, but we will. We don't always respond as perfectly as we hope. But we will respond. That was my point. Every Christian, if they're truly a Christian, they will definitely be a living sacrifice. They will live the life described in Romans 12. This is not optional. This is not something that some of God's people do and some of God's people don't do. And I prove this to you from Romans 6.22. Now, don't turn there. I'm not going back there. But I'll tell you what, this truth can be proven from a whole lot of different verses besides just that one. Now listen to me. Many of you are very familiar with this text. Some of you are not. But let me read it to you. Listen. Jesus Christ Himself says this. Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I hope you get that. Not everybody that goes to church is going to heaven. Not everybody that owns the Bible is going to heaven. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord's going to heaven. Not everybody that sings the songs is going to heaven. Okay, who's going? You know what he says? He says the living sacrifices are going. You say, it doesn't say that. I know that text. Oh, but listen to what it does say. Who's the one going to heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let me tell you something. This is exactly what it is to be a living sacrifice. All of it on the altar. Committed to live for the will of our Father in heaven. That is the living sacrifice. That is. And those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is exactly what it is to be totally abandoned to the will of God. It is living sacrifice. How about another verse? Some of you know this one pretty well too. This, this is an Old Testament description of the new covenant. If you're saved, you've been saved under this new covenant. What does it say? This is what God says He'll do. I will, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you. Now, do we find that in the New Testament? Is that part of the gospel? You better believe it is. Romans chapter 8, very clear. If you don't have the spirit of God, you're none of his. You don't belong to Christ. So, he says, I'll put my spirit within you. These, these are the tenets of the new covenant. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, what is a rule? When you think about a rule or a ruler, what is it? It's a standard of measure. Let me ask you, what is the standard of measure for the Christian life? It is to be a living sacrifice. And he says he will cause us to obey his rule. He will cause us to keep the standard. 
I know there's failures. I know there's imperfections. But the basic tenor of our life, the basic direction of our life, the basic practice of our life will to be living sacrifices. And God says, I will cause them to do it. You see, folks, it is not optional. He says, I will cause them to obey. And how does He do it? He does it by our will. He says He will cause us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. He changes our will. I mean, you make a man hungry, you change his desires, you change his appetites, and he'll eat, right? God comes and He changes our will. He changes our desires. He causes us to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. A man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness is going to do what? He's going to go eat it, right? He's going to head in that direction. A man is controlled by his desires. A woman is controlled by her appetites. We go after what we long for. And when God makes us long for what's good, then that's the direction we head in. You know, one of the places this just hits you right between the eyes, I'll tell you where. Matthew 25. And I come back to this over and over and over again. Matthew 25 is one of the most descriptive pictures of Judgment Day given to us in all the Bible. There is Christ. He comes, Son of Man, in His glory. All the angels with Him. And He will sit on His glorious throne of judgment. And what does it say? All the nations are gathered before Him. You and I will be there. Every single one of us are gathered there and there is the searching eyes of flame of Christ looking. He knows all. He's there to judge all of men. What does it say? He divides them. This group went to church. That group didn't. That's not what He says. You know how He divides them? He divides them by the living sacrifices from those who weren't. You say, I never thought of it like that before. That's exactly what he's saying. Exactly. What he is describing right there in Matthew 25 is the ones on the right hand are the ones who lived the Romans 12 life. And what did they do? They fed the hungry. They gave to drink to the thirsty. They visited the sick. They came to the imprisoned. They clothed the naked. And they're saying, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, as much as you did it unto, unto a person, unto one of the least of these, my people, you did it to me. It's the living sacrifices. And right there at the end of that text, it says, those who were not the living sacrifices go away into eternal punishment. But the ones who were the living sacrifices, they go into eternal life. You know what happens? When you're made a new creation in Christ, this is the life that is evoked by that. This is the life that comes forth. This is exactly the radical life of Romans 12. This is not optional. Listen very, very, very carefully. This is not saying that by working and doing, you can wash away the guilt of your sin. It is not saying that. 
It is not saying that if you're lost, you're dead in sin, you're wicked, you're corrupt, you've broken God's laws over and over, that the way to get right with God is to try to clean up your life and be good and do good. That is not what it's saying. What it says, folks, what we need to get, what we need to remember, is that Jesus Christ did not come into this world to seek and save the good. He came to seek and to save the lost. Do you realize that all these people in the end that are welcomed into glory, that hear the well done, good and faithful servants, we were nothing but broken, wretched, wicked, despicable people. And you know what the Scripture says? Jesus Christ went to the cross. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And here it is. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous of good works. You see, that's the very point. Jesus Christ went to the cross not just to wash away the guilt of the sin. He went there to make a people for His own possession who are zealous of good works. The people of Matthew 25 are not like that because they determined, oh, I want to be a good person and get to heaven. They're like that because they saw themselves broken, undone, wicked, breaking God's law over and over and over again. Not worthy of His least look. Only worthy of hell. And they cried out to Christ in faith. And when He swept in and in mercy pulled them out of that deep, miry pit that we heard about, what He does is He raises them up and with a new heart and with the power of God in their life, He makes them into new creations in Christ who now love, who now have joy, who now the very raw power of God is there. That's what I'm telling you folks. When it says God causes them to keep His rules, we're talking about an unleashing of supernatural just the might of God. This is why it's so certain. Because God has put His power on the line to make certain it happens. And you see, what separates the people is that the people on the right hand lived a life like no one can live unless the power of God is behind it. They live a life that nobody can live unless there's faith in Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Christ Himself said in John 15, without Me, you can do nothing. The ones on the right hand did all they did because they were drawing vines, nutrient from the vines. They were just these branches and they were sucking, drawing all the nutrients from Christ. And without Him, you can't do anything. Nobody walks up out of this world all hell-bent, dead in sin and thinks they're going to sit down and love. You know what they end up doing? People like that pray their brother into hell. That's exactly what they do. They can look all prim and proper on the outside. They can go to church. They can say the right deal. But I'll tell you what, down deep inside in the heart, the Scripture describes these people. There's jealousy. There's envy. There's bitterness. They don't respond to persecution. They don't respond to being wronged by doing good in return and by praying for those that persecute them. They're wicked in the heart. They're bitter. They speak evil about others. They respond with vengeance. 
They want to get back. They want to strike back rather than loving the enemy. Because I'll tell you what, you don't love your enemy except God's in the picture, folks. Naturally, we do not have the ability to do that. Well, so that's it. And you know why I wanted to stress that so much and return again to it today? Because look, you church, this is not optional. The life we're setting is the life that every one of us needs to expect that God is going to bring forth out of ourselves. And you need to expect it from one another. And if we look around and you don't see people living the life of living sacrifices, you need to be exhorting them. You need to be praying for them. You need to be encouraging them. Because as Paul was certain that the true child... Paul knew this. He knew the new covenant. He knew that God would cause His people to keep His commandments and to keep His rules and to obey those statutes. He knew that. He knew the power of regeneration when he said this. He wasn't making the appeal because he thought knew some would fail. If you fail, you're not one of Christ. And I want to emphasize this because this church needs to excel. We need to expect this. This is mandatory. But someone may say, well, hold on just a second. If it's so certain, if it's so absolutely guaranteed that every true Christian will indeed live the life of a living sacrifice to God, then why does Paul need to even make that appeal to be living sacrifices? I mean, if it's so certain, why make any appeal at all? Any of you wonder that? Man, that'd be a good question to ask, right? I would respond really by asking another question to you. If you know your Bibles at all, is this not exactly what we find all over God's Word? Just such a thing as this. For instance, 1 Peter 1.15, be holy in all your conduct. There it is. An imperative. Be holy. Okay, but in another place in 1 Peter, you find you are a holy nation. You see, you find this all through God's Word. You are holy, be holy. You say, well, why? If I am holy, why would I, why would I be commanded? Why would it be given an imperative to be holy? Again, Romans 6. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then Paul turns right around and says, sin will have no dominion over you. Well, why would you just say that if it's not going to have dominion? Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.16, you're, you're basically told to be that light. Shine, let that light shine forth. You see, this is not foreign to God's Word. Why? Well, because for this reason. We know. Did Jesus Christ not say, My sheep hear My voice? God's Word is His voice. As, as the Lord speaks to us, God's children hear that. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that it's through the admonitions. It's through the exhortations. It's through the preaching of the Word. That God's people are edified. God's Spirit dwells within God's people. When they hear God's Word, they respond. He knows that. And the promises, the certainties are given to us in Word that you are holy, that you sin will not have dominion over you. You are light because at the same time, we are a people called to live by faith. Are we not? And what, what these texts do is they draw us back to God all the time. They... 
We look and see in Him the certainties of these things. Our faith rests there. Look. If God says that I've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you know what? I can go there with confidence. And when I see things kind of breaking down in my own life, I can go there and I can rest. The Lord is going to make me into that image. And if there's ever an image of living sacrifice, it's Him! And God tells me He predestined me for that very thing. Oh, it's certain. But you, but you see what this does? Is Christian, when you're confronted by very difficult things. Because I guarantee you, when people persecute you, it's not just some walk through the roses. It takes grace. It takes something outside yourself. And what you need in those times is a confidence. God made me holy. God said sin won't reign. God says that by the Spirit I can put these things to death. God says I'm light. God says that I will be conformed to the image of Christ. I can go to these. I can hang on to them. I can take them with me. I can trust that. And when I see that I'm under some great situation, some traumatic trial and struggle, I can go in faith and lay hold on that. Lord, Your name is at stake. You died to redeem a people to make them zealous of good works. I need help here, Lord. That's what it is to stay connected to the vine. If you abide in Me, what is that abiding but faith? What is it? You cannot abide in Christ but by faith. Well, that was my first message. I want to, and I want to pound that home to you. Church, Grace Community Church, this is the standard. This is the rule. This is what Christ-likeness is. This is what it is to keep the will of the Father in heaven. It is to be totally submitted to Him on the altar of sacrifice. And this is not optional. God guarantees it. The thing I did in the second message, and really I just had one purpose there as well, and I'm much, I'm much shorter in reviewing that, but my main objective there was to emphasize the extremity of sacrifice. In other words, I wanted you guys to feel the weightiness of the term. When the Old Covenant was being lived under, an Israelite heard the word sacrifice. It was not a small deal. He had to take animals right out of the very source of his wealth and he had to offer the, the bulls and the cows and the lambs and the goats that were the best in the flock. He had to offer those. In those days, that was his source of food. That was his source of clothing. And God demanded right from the very core of his wealth and he asked for the best animals. And oftentimes, it required lots of sacrifice. Lots of repetitive, over and over and over, giving. And then we come along and we see sacrifice when God gave forth His Son. It's a big word. It's very big. God gave His Son over to be melted under His wrath. 
the psalm poured out like water. God spills the blood. God spills the soul of His Son. And I'll tell you this. That's what sacrifice means to God. That's what sacrifice meant to the Old Covenant Israelite. It meant a great cost. When God calls you, Christian, to be a living sacrifice, He's not talking about something that's cheap. He's talking about something that costs you a lot. He's talking about surrendering all. He's talking about yielding up that which is most valuable. God looks at His children and says, I want you to sacrifice yourself to Me. He's using a word that does not mean some half-hearted little offering in an offering plate somewhere. God wants the most extreme sacrifice. This great commandment. God wants us to present ourselves to God as those who love Him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And as Christ tells us, it's going to cost some of you your life. That's what He wants. He wants it all. He wants you to put your family up there. He wants you to put your money up there. He wants you to put your life up there. Yourself. And Christ says, some of you, they're going to kill and they're going to think that they're doing God a favor. Some of you, maybe some in this room are going to die for the name of Christ. But that's what He wants. He wants it all on there. Sacrifice is extreme. Sacrifice. It's mandatory. It's not optional. And it's extreme. Christ gave His own life. God gave His Son. The Israelite gave his best animals. It's costly. Okay. That brings us today. Look at the text. I want one word to jump out at you right from this point forward. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What damage we do to that text if we miss the word therefore. The whole force and thrust of this text is lost if we lightly pass over that word. I mean, let's think about it for a second. Why does Paul stick the word therefore there? What does it mean? What function does that word carry? Well, basically has this meaning. It means in consequence of. Or as a result of something. Now let me give you an example how we might use the word. Here, here we were. Well, let me go back even a little further. Trevor Johnson. This church supports a missionary who's laboring right now in Indonesia. This guy, when he first went to the mission field oh, about three years ago, he first he didn't go to where he wanted to finally serve. He went to Indonesia, to an island of West Java. And there, in a city of Bandung, he began to study Indonesian. He spent a year in in language school there, and he was preparing, ultimately, to move 2,000 miles away to Papua and work among what, even now, are still some cannibals. Where we'd have to actually go and learn another language altogether, but Indonesian is kind of a universal language over there. You're in... A year in language school. 
And he met a man named Nunu. Nunu headed up a group of evangelistic group over there called what we call, they call Asipamatron. Well, Trevor got to know this guy, got to recognize his gifts, became very interested in him, saw that he definitely was doing a good work. He was a gifted man. He was a giving man. He had helped Trevor, and Trevor just fell in love with this guy. He was heading up an evangelistic team, and it seemed like God was using them. A number of people were being saved. And what happened was Trevor got done with language school and moved 2,000 miles away. He started a Bible translation project over there, started building a home, going to reach an unreached tribe. And now he had this connection 2,000 miles away with Asipamatron. And his finances, he had been helping Nunu financially, and it just his time, his efforts, his money began to be spread very thin. So you know what? We began to get prayer letters. We began to get emails. And Trevor was asking that some church or churches, plural, in this country might rise up and take on this Asipamatron team. Well, I kept seeing it come across, and I dismissed it. I thought, well, we're not in the inner core of the churches that support Trevor, and somebody's definitely going to jump on board. I mean, that's just, I look at those kind of things, and I just... I want to do them. And so I figured, oh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to do this. I'll just... And, he, and requests came again. And requests came again. And again. And again. And again. And finally, I felt embarrassed. And I emailed Trevor and I said, well, Trevor, what if maybe our church jumped into a position kind of like Heartcry does with their foreign indigenous missionaries. How about if we jumped into a situation like that? Well, Trevor was very cautious and in the emails and a phone call and, and discussion with the men here. What do you think? Should we do this? Should we not? Uh, Trevor had concerns about us. We had concerns about Nunu and, and Trevor. And, and finally it was determined, well, we need to go over there. Well, then we determined, well, okay, here's three guys. And Craig and Carlos and myself, we went over there and what did we do? We met these people. We heard literally hours of testimony from different people over there. We heard Trevor's testimony about the things he's observed in the team. We saw the team. We went up to some of these persecuted Christians up in the mountains. We spent hours and hours and hours with Nunu, with Trevor, talking, asking questions, discussion back and forth between the three men. We traveled all the way to the other side of the world to do this. Come back to the church. We present this thing. We tell you folks about it. Now look, you take that whole package and you wrap it all up together. And we say, therefore, we began to support Asipamatron. But you see what that word does? Therefore, it means that we did not start supporting Asipamatron just out of the blue. It doesn't mean that it just... It just came right out of thin air. It doesn't mean that, that there was nothing that was foundational to this. It means that our decision to support Nunu was not based on nothing. It was based on a very distinct foundation. It was based on something. And this is what Paul's doing. He doesn't come along and say, you guys need to be living sacrifices just out of thin air. You need it. Well, you know, it would be a good thing. Just be a living sacrifice and that's it. 
Just like the decision we made with Trevor Johnson, it's based on a foundation. It has roots. It goes back to something. It goes back to hours. It goes back to a trip to the other side of the world. It goes back to emails and phone calls and all this stuff. There's a basis for this. Therefore, we began to support this. This is what Paul's saying. You living a life of living sacrifice does not come out of thin air. I mean, what Paul is saying to us is this. There's a connection. What's it connected to? I'll tell you what it's connected to. The mercies of God. And that's basically a summary form. It's a summary way of saying the first 11 chapters of Romans. I mean, he goes through 11 chapters of strong teaching and doctrine and principles, theology, laying out the Gospel this way and that way. One of the most complex presentations, the most, in all of our Bibles. And then, and only then, after 11 chapters of that, does He say, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies. All that stuff. Therefore, there's a foundation. When He is saying, brethren, this life in Romans 12 is so radical. It is so impossible that if you don't get the connection with the first 11 chapters, you won't live like this. That life of living sacrifice is founded on truth. It's founded on the mercies of God. It has a foundation. It has roots. Now listen. I think about this. Okay, if I came to you and I said, I want to persuade so-and-so to give away their car or to give away their house or to give away all the money they have in all their bank accounts. And it's my job to persuade you. And if you ask, well, why should I? I mean, am I going to say, well, just because? I mean, folks, that doesn't cut it. Now look, here, but here's the thing. You would laugh if I came to your door. Della, where are you? You'd laugh if I came to your door. I said, I want you to give this house to me. Why? You wouldn't. That's right. But now if I came and I was trying to convince her, I would want to come with the most convincing, persuasive arguments imaginable. The thing I'm telling you here is Paul is asking us not to just give the car, not just the house, not just the money. He wants it all. He says, put it all up there. Now I'm telling you this. If he's coming and he's asking for everything, he is going to bring the most persuasive argument possible. And I say to myself, well, how is, how is that? I mean, how, how do you say I appeal by the mercy? Therefore, I, I'm appealing to these mercies of God. You say, man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, how does that motivate? Are you guys really feeling that to be extra heavily persuasive right at the moment? I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Give everything away. Die to self. Offer yourself up to the will of God. I began to think about this. How is that persuasive? Well, the first thing was, I began to let my mind just run crazy in the first 11 chapters of Romans. I began to just go through. I mean, think about how Romans 8 is ended. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. There's a big mercy. The love of Christ. I began to think several places. Grace. Oh, that's an unleashing of the power of God in a way that you do not deserve. Spirit of adoption. 
He's given to us. We actually have the Spirit of the Almighty living within us. We are being created into these dwelling places of God. Amazing. We have peace with God. That's, that comes from Romans 5. And it's not just a, oh, i got this serenity in my mind now. You know, like the Buddhist. None of that. It's God's not, a, He's not fighting with us anymore. God isn't fighting against us. And He is. Oh, how people have this idea. God is their friend. And He's their big Santa Claus up in the sky. The Bible is altogether different. You're by nature children of wrath. God is not pleased. Oh, Romans 8. No condemnation. What words? Romans 6. Sanctification. The righteousness of God. Romans 3. The power of God. Romans 1. True Jewishness. Romans 2. Newness of life. Romans 6. Freedom from sin. Romans 6. Intercession of Christ. Romans 8. The Spirit that intercedes and helps us pray. Romans 8. Faith, Romans 4, the nation of Israel was given, hardened, so that you Gentiles might get in. Romans 11, justification, Romans 3, propitiation, Romans 3, kindness, Romans 2, freedom from the law, Romans 7, glory that isn't compared to our sufferings in this life, Romans 8, sonship, Romans 8, love of God shed abroad in our hearts, Romans 5. Redemption, Romans 3. Christ died for us, Romans 5. Our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered, Romans 4. Made slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, Romans 6. Made obedient from the heart, Romans 6. Promised bodily resurrection, Romans 8. All things work together for our good, Romans 8. I got looking at all these. And I got thinking, we are so by nature, so corrupt, so foul, so filthy, so wicked. And God comes to the most undeserving and says, I'm going to do such a thing to you. That in Romans chapter 9, the best title the Apostle Paul is going to be able to think of for a Christian is just a vessel of mercy. I am going to heap so much mercy upon you. I am going to lavish it upon you. I am going to make you a vessel that is just going to be filled to overflowing with mercy. And all these mercies are going to flow to you only one way. Only through Jesus Christ. No other. To undeserving sinners by faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to become vessels of mercy. And Paul says this, Christian, remember those mercies. Remember them. And as you start thinking through all this, I mean, what's the motivation? And I started thinking through the gamut of Scripture and searching Scripture and reading some possible parallel verses. And you know the one that just comes out of all of them above every other verse that I could think of is 2 Corinthians 5.14. Just listen to it. The love of Christ controls us. Literally compels us. Constrains us compresses forcibly. 
all our energies into one channel of living sacrifice. Now listen to how it says. The love of Christ controls or constrains us because we've concluded this. Again, it has to do with the thinking. It's the way we think. It's the way we conclude. It's the way we reason. How so, Paul? One has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all. Now watch this. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. You see, that's what living sacrifice is. You're no longer living for yourself. You're on the altar of God. You're a pleasing aroma to Him. Subdued to His will. Resigned to His purposes. No longer living for yourself. That's exactly what's being said here. But for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You live for another. But here's, here's, the, here's what his argument is. We're constrained by the love of Christ. That's, what, that's another way of saying the mercies of God. It is. All the mercies. All the love. It's, it's, I mean, here it is. Let's just, you just put it in practical terms. Somebody wrongs me. I mean, somebody does something evil against me. Okay. I could get revenge. Maybe it comes to your mind. Vengeance. But you know what? And I know that this, this almost lightens this, but it's such a perfect picture. You know those Verizon commercials? When you got the guy and he's like somewhere in his phone and all of a sudden they flip the camera angle around and there's a whole slew of people there. Technicians and salesmen and the whole bunch. But that's how it is with the Christian life. What Paul wants you to do is say, look back there. Look at all these mercies. Somebody wrongs you. I mean, why do people seek vengeance when somebody wrongs them? Because they think that there's something to be gained by it. Right? They think somehow it's going to satisfy them. Somehow it's going to help their situation. Somehow it's going to make them feel better. And what Paul wants you to do, he wants to appeal to the mercies. Appeal to all the good that God has promised. The fact that He died for you. His love is toward you. He is for you. He is not against you. All things work together for your good. You've got sanctification. There's glory. There's going to be a redeemed body. You already possess the spirit of adoption. You're already a son. You already have been freed from sin. You made slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. You've got this propitiation, reconciliation. You've got justification. He has justified you ungodly, unworthy person. Justified. And he says, look at all that. What do you have to be gained? You have the prospects of such glory that are not to be compared to the present sufferings. What in the world do you have to gain? You are just such a person that have everything to give. That's what a living sacrifice is. It's just giving. God has poured so much mercy in you. It's overflowing. You can direct it back to other people. And what it is, is His love constrains us. You see, what it is, is His God's love is showered. We're constrained. We're compelled to be living sacrifices. His love towards us compels us. We do not offer ourselves up as living sacrifices to pay God back for some debt. It's a love deal. It's the fullness of that first commandment. Loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Why? Because it, it, it overflows. I see all of His love for me and it's just reflected back. And look, 
This is not foreign to Scripture. Christ said, He said, look, you've got one sinner forgiven a little. One sinner forgiven a lot. Which one's going to love more? He's saying, look at the mercies. Look where you came from. Look what God saved you from. Look at the vast... You're a vessel of mercy. The fullness of this whole deal. Who's going to love more? The psalmist said, I love the Lord because He heard His cry and He showered mercies upon Him. I love the Lord because... You say, well, we're not supposed to love the Lord because of anything He's done for us just because He's glorious in Himself. You didn't get that from the Bible. He is glorious in Himself. And I don't take away from that one bit. But I'm telling you, His love for us should fuel such emotions and such affections and such gratitude and such passion with all you have. You see, you are rich. You're not one of those slinking debtors to their sin that have to get revenge or have to hoard all your money to yourself. He's given you so much. And Paul just appeals to them. Keep your Remember, it's a mind deal. You've got to think right. You've got to have your mind transformed. And just fill it with all the love of Christ towards you. Let it constantly... And you get in that mindset and everything works for my good. Well, so, if, if my enemy comes and persecutes me, it's working. He's only doing me good. I mean, I don't have to get mad and bent out of shape over that, do I? Look, I appeal to you by the mercies of God who aren't saved. You know what mercy means? Mercy means that God says, I have pity for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what depths you've descended to. It doesn't matter what wickednesses you are guilty of. I sent my son to pour out his blood and pour out his soul so that I might show pity and compassion and kindness and mercy upon such creatures as only deserve my wrath. What a powerful appeal the mercies of God are. And what bankrupt, poverty-stricken, miserable individuals that will trust to their own righteousness like Andre was. They'll trust to their own church going. They'll trust to anything but Christ. strikes me over and over. The demons don't have an opportunity. Men are offered the Gospel. They're offered all these undeserved mercies. And I think of how much hell will be hell. Oh, for many reasons. 
Can you imagine there anything being more piercing, more punishing than the recollection that I had Christ and all of the mercies that come with Him presented to me on a silver platter and I spit on it, I hated it, I kicked at it, and I walked away Brethren, I appeal to you by what God has done for you and all those mercies. Give. 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 You are channels to give. Give your money. Give your time. Give your life. Give your soul. Give your all. Lay it on the altar. Don't hold anything back. The mercies of God just cry out to you to be just this reckless abandon of love and sacrifice and joy and faith. I mean, just if when all things work together for your good, when you've got the promise that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, when you've got the promise that you are being held, nobody can bring charge against you, nobody can bring accusation again, God is not against you, God is for you, and if God did not spare His own Son, how will He not with Him give you all things? If that's true, let's go! The east side is out here. How are we going to reach it? What new strategy of love, sacrifice, to pierce into this dark realm out here? Some of you have been innovative. Some of you have been sacrificial. Some of you have been very giving. Some of you, it's apparent by your lives that you love Jesus Christ. But let's let that love and plead that love and have that love constrain us, compel us more and more. And it will as you renew that mind as it's transformed, as your thinking becomes full with it. More and more, remove the television, remove the radio, remove the internet from the stuff that is just trifling, it's trivial, it's worldly, and fill it more and more that you may comprehend what those mercies of God are. You may be filled with them. You may be thankful for them. You may be grateful It's as you do that that the love of Christ is a compelling thing. It really is. You will find yourself not able to hold back. This is what God wants. He wants you to live your life in such a way that the onlooking world sees. Whoa! They love Christ more than they love sex. More than they love money. More than they love houses and cars. They love Him more than anything else. That brings glory. God help us.